stand here in reverence to the scripture. We ask you to listen for God speaking to your heart as we read these words from 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, in this story in our lives, things change so quickly. We've been experiencing that over these last several days. New restrictions, new realities, new reports about what's happening with this virus that's spreading around the world. It causes strain on all of us as we try to adapt and make the best of a very bad situation. But in terms of change, this text picks up on a story where change is happening and people in this story are having trouble adapting. It is a situation in which things are changing for Samuel. Samuel's the key character here. He's been a judge and a prophet and a leader of Israel. But they're in a time where things are changing and Samuel's having trouble adapting. He's trying, but he's not sure if he's for it or against it. As we've read through the first several chapters, if you read it beforehand, perhaps you already know this part, but I'll give you a little background. Samuel's been leading the people, but they've been asking for a king. He doesn't think it's a good idea. He tells them this is a bad idea, but they continue to ask, can we have a king? Finally, Samuel feels like the Lord says yes, and so he anoints a man named Saul. Even though Samuel had misgivings about this, 
By this time in the story, chapter 15, chapter 16, Samuel has become used to the idea. Probably because Saul, in a time of tribal warfare, has won a number of battles with Israel's enemies. He seems to be pulling the people together. He seems to be victorious. They think it's a blessing from God in terms of what he's doing, in terms of protecting the Israelite people. The problem comes when Saul fails to follow a directive from God. He comes to a point where Samuel hears God saying to tell Saul to obliterate a particular tribe. Saul goes and defeats them, but he does not kill everyone as he was instructed. He saves their leader and brings him back. They select some of the best livestock and bring it back. They say they're going to do it for the Lord. But as the story unfolds, it says God is not happy that Saul is not following his directive. Now Samuel is confused and torn in terms of all this. He had not been comfortable with having a king. Then he becomes comfortable having a king. And then he hears from the Lord in chapter 15, I have rejected Saul. I'm going to choose a new king. Now it's a tricky story for many of us in the modern day. We have some misgivings and kind of scratch our head when we hear a story saying that God directed one of God's people to obliterate, to kill, to destroy, to devastate another tribe. I can tell you they are writing theological history. They're trying to make sense of their situation. They believe their God is leading them. They believe this is God at work in their midst for good. So even though it makes us squeamish and we have some misgivings, I want us to dig deeper into the story to see if we can still find some lessons that are applicable here. I think there's some really relevant things for us in our own situation as we look at this story. So walk with me through it. We picked up the story with Samuel apparently still grieving the change that is in progress between who's going to be the leader or the king. As we're reading, Saul is still the king. But the Lord's telling Samuel, go anoint another one. He's a little torn about that as well. He has some personal concerns for his own safety because he knows that Saul is a warrior and could come and kill him if he feels like he's undermined. He's grieving all that's going on. Apparently, he's somewhat paralyzed in terms of doing what God is asking him. That's what we read in verse 1, where the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. Lord is still giving Samuel guidance or direction, still leading him into the future, even though Samuel's feeling a little bit stuck. Many of us have felt stunned or shocked or stuck or overwhelmed with all these changes over these last several days. It seems to be happening so quickly and so out of our control. We seem to be a little bit paralyzed in some ways in terms of what to do. But God is saying it's okay to grieve, but we can do more. Or even more important, God is saying, I am doing more. God is still at work and has plans for the future of the people. That's what Samuel hears from the Lord. I still have plans for the future. I'm still working. I'm choosing a new and better leader. Follow my guidance or my direction. 
Can you see how that could be a lesson for us in these days? Can you still believe that God has a future for us, that God is out in front of us, that God is leading us into that future? It's a question that's important to contemplate. But even more than that, might you entertain the idea that just like Samuel's being summoned to do something more than grieve, perhaps God is summoning each of us to do more than being paralyzed. Even though we're restricted, perhaps God has something for us to learn, a way for us to grow, perhaps a way to serve. But this text clearly affirms that even in the midst of trouble, God is alive and at work and active in all of our lives. It's something for you to entertain and think about, to see if you believe that God is still at work in your life. Are you still trusting the Lord in that way? I wrote an article that's in the church paper this week that talks about past epidemics in the history of Christianity, particularly those in the Roman Empire in the first few hundred years of the Jesus movement. The article talks about how everyday Christians played a crucial role in caring for others during these past epidemics. What I suggested is that they were a powerful witness to the love of God alive in the world when they were still busy loving God and loving neighbor, when they were still able to find ways to care for their neighbor, to reach out in love to someone else, even if it's not in person, how might we care for others? Perhaps we too can be that powerful witness in these days of distress. Could God be calling you to action in some way you haven't thought of? Just like those early Christians were called into service in new ways, could God be calling you to do the same? There's a second lesson here, though, a second insight in this lesson that focuses on how we best view others. Listen to what the text says in the last part of verse 1. After Samuel has been told by the Lord to set out, the Lord says, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So that's the struggle. Who's going to be the king? So Samuel decides he will do what he feels God prompting him to do. He travels to Bethlehem. He finds Jesse. He pulls them all together for this sacrifice or for this worship moment. And he's thinking that one of these sons is with Jesse is the one that God is calling. But it tells us in verse 6 and 7 how Samuel's thinking about this. This first son, who we assume is the largest, the oldest, the tallest, comes along and Samuel thinks, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But the Lord looks on the heart. Now we know this lesson that there's more to people than physical appearance. And yet we still have a whole industry in advertising that spends billions of dollars on people's appearance and how to make yours better and how to make a right impression. We know this from our common lexicon, from sayings like don't judge a book by its cover. And yet we are drawn in sometimes in making judgments about people and 
who they are, how good they are, or how worthy or how intelligent by their physical appearance. And this Bible story reminds us that's not the way of God, that God's looking on the heart. And God is suggesting we look inside to the character, the motivations, the disposition of a person whenever we are sizing someone up. This time of year here in March, typically, I'd be getting ready for March Madness for the NCAA men's and women's college basketball tournaments. It's a great time of year if you're a sports fan. Lots of games, lots of drama. But of course, all that's been canceled. And if you're restricted from going to school or work, you're finding yourself at home with more hours. I'm still coming to the office every day, but when I go home in the evenings or on Saturdays, we're not going out to eat. We're not visiting friends or family. We're staying at home. So we're watching more television. One show we're watching is called Love is Blind. It's on Netflix. You could say it's um, a social experiment, or you might call it reality TV. But let me tell you what they've done. It's more interesting than you might think. They've taken a bunch of young adults and put them in what they call pods, which are rooms where they can hear the other person, but they cannot see them. And they date or have conversations while they're in the pods. After three dates, four dates, after they've had a time to talk with each other, they ask the guys if they want to propose to any of the women to get down on one knee and say, will you marry me, even though they've never seen them? Sounds kind of silly and unrealistic to me. And yet, this is what they're doing. I'm still watching. They're now following four couples where the guy actually got down on his knee before he ever saw his partner or the one he's going to propose to and said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And then they meet and then they start trying to navigate what kind of relationship they're in when they're already engaged. They've made this big commitment to one another. And now they're just now seeing each other. And they're just now living in 24-7, experiencing one another in all kinds of different situations. It does point out that there's more than physical appearance. And that's really the question they're asking. Is love blind? That is, can you fall in love and maintain a relationship with someone even if you don't know what they look like from the beginning it's pointing up or highlighting the same thing our story's talking about is there more to people than physical appearance how important do we make physical appearance are we willing to look at character are we willing to look at attitude and disposition and personality and maintain a commitment in those kinds of ways in other words this reality TV show highlights the importance of the heart, to use the language of our Bible text today. It is a lesson for us to remember in any relationship that people are more than just their appearance. And as people of faith, we should be looking into the heart. We should be thinking about the inner person whenever we're interacting with other people. It's an important lesson for any of us. There's a third lesson here too that I want to talk about before we stop. It talks about the idea that we are not static individuals, that we are not stuck in time and space. It says we are an ongoing creation whenever we are in relationship with God. Now in the story, the struggle is who's going to be king? 
And as Samuel's trying to be the vehicle for God of choosing someone, God reminds him we're looking for what's in the person's heart. As the story develops, Samuel finally says this youngest son, David, is the one. We're told it's because of his heart. Later on in other places in the Bible, we're told that King David has a heart that yearns for God's heart, that yearns after God. David wants to be the man of God in all circumstances. In some places, he excels at that. In other places, he fails terribly. Later in his life, rather than being the man of God, he involves himself in adultery and murder and perhaps rape. He's gone in opposite direction from where God would want him to go. Rather than growing in love and maturing in faith, David falls and stumbles terribly. But the Gospels tell us that there is a path on which we can walk where we do grow in faith or grow in grace or grow in love, where we do become more mature in our Christian faith, and God is transforming us as we walk this path. It's a path which continually transforms our heart or our inner self so that we are more full of God's love. In fact, the Bible says that God is transforming all of us into the image of Christ, that as a disciple of Christ, when we're following Him, God is changing us from the inside out so that our heart ends up having only one motivation, is that of love, that all that we do is only motivated by love of God and love of neighbor. Dr. Rigby, who was our Barton Clinton lecturer, theological professor, she was here a few weeks ago talking to us. She's written a book that's become very popular about Christian faith called Holding Faith, where she talks about all the different aspects of Christian theology and how do we as modern people hang on to our faith. I want to read you a portion she's written that applies to what we're talking about here today. She says this, to realize the discontinuity between who we are in Christ and how we live and act in our day-to-day -day lives is risky because it can lead us to discouragement and even to despair. She notes what happens in the situation when we realize that God has a high ideal and is leading us and we go a different direction or fall short and realize we're not living up to the goodness if we think about that we're people created in the image of a good God, she says that can be so discouraging. Then she goes on and writes about how salvation works for us in those situations. She says to be aware of our salvation and to want to live more fully as those who are being met and made by God is, I would say, close to whatever it means to be saved. Salvation, I'm thinking, is the ongoing process of perceiving and living in continuity with our redemption in Christ. Paul suggests salvation is something we work out with fear and trembling. The great Christian theologian Kierkegaard, wanting to emphasize that holding faith is not always the easiest thing to do, would never simply call himself a Christian. Instead, Emphasizing the character of salvation as ongoing, he liked to say that he was in the process of becoming a Christian. So Dr. Rigby, 
following Paul and Kierkegaard and others are pointing out the nature of salvation as something that's ongoing where we have an ability to grow and mature in our life as we're following Christ. Christians agree across the centuries that this love of God is being poured into our hearts, that God's love grows in us and transforms us. It's not only that we're saved from sin, from our false and deteriorated or distorted selves, but we're saved for a relationship with God that leads us into abundant life through Christ, that transforms us into people who embody love just as Christ did in our everyday lives as we go day to day, that we're looking only to love God and to love our neighbors. What a powerful experience for us, but what a powerful experience for the world if we're able to allow God through Christ to come into our hearts and transform us so that we share love with anybody and everybody we meet. Well, as I mentioned early, we're in this season of Lent, 40 days where we spend time in self-examination, contemplation, exploring our deeper selves and inviting God to show us some insight into whom God wants us to be and where God wants us to go. We can be sure, even as we think about Jesus spending these 40 days in the wilderness, that we will have an experience of God's presence if we continue to attune ourselves during this season of Lent. It is a season, though, of 40 days, so it's a journey requiring patient trust and consistency to continue to turn to God, even as Samuel did, as he went through this journey with who God wanted to lead the people of Israel. Patient trust is not my forte. Maybe it's not yours as well. So many of us are active and productive and ready to go. And we're living in a time where all the signs are saying, slow down, stop, step back, take a deep breath. Of course, for us, we're not looking for a king. We're trying to live through a pandemic. I saw a poem that a woman named Lynn Unger wrote. It's called Pandemic. I thought it was refreshing. I thought it gave a good context or frame for people of faith in terms of how we might approach this. As we close the sermon today, let me read this poem to you. She writes this. What if you thought of the pandemic as the Jews consider the Sabbath, the most sacred of times? Cease from travel cease from buying and selling give up just for now on trying to make the world different than it is sing pray touch only those to whom you commit your life center down and when your body has become still reach out with your heart Know that we're connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. You can hardly deny that now. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Surely that has become clear. Do not reach out your hands. Reach out your heart. Reach out your words. Reach out the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise the world your love for better 
or for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as we all shall live. Reach out your heart. Amen. And thanks be to God.